Hello everyone and welcome back to The Platform. This is the Station House audio series. We are back on location with Michelle Ardron. She was the first running trades uh, employee uh, to be a female running trades employee to be hired by CP Rail out of the Toronto Terminal. We're back with Michelle today. Michelle, last time we talked to you, you had been classed as a yardman. You were pulling pins on the Toronto hump and working Toronto Yard and the pull down. So take us, let's pick it up from there and take us out of the yard into maybe your next promotion or your next assignment. What came after Yardman? So uh, the way it works on the railway, it's very progressive. Um, so I think I was probably six months as a Yardman. They call them Yardman trainmen. So you would typically, if you did leave the yard, go out as a head end trainman. But then it's time to qualify up and do your mechanical portion, they call it. So more the air brake systems. Uh, so you're back into class and learning about air brakes and the mechanical stuff. Because prior to that, the mechanical portion was predominantly uh, the conductor's job as a trainman. You were supporting role to uh, the conductor. So you come back in. It's like another rules class, but it's more about uh, the air brakes and, and mechanical, how things work, the way they work, and more of those rules. And then We'd some... be into 1989 now? Yes, it would have been 89. 89. 89. Okay. So, yeah, we're in 89. And it's, again, a classroom portion and a field placement portion. And so you do uh, mainline work. So you're out uh, for for CP. Uh, it's on the north end up to Mactier and on the east end on the Belleville subdivision to Smith Falls. And southwest uh, Toronto crews only go to Hamilton and London crews uh, work the London pool. Toronto crews do not work uh, Toronto-London. And the same on the, um, or unlike the Belleville, the Belleville, there are Smith Falls crews who come to Toronto and Toronto crews who go to Smith Falls, they equalize that pool. Uh, but no MacTier crews come south. So Toronto typically just works those areas. So you're, you're doing lots of placement, lots of train riding with conductors in cabooses at that point, learning how to switch. Um, if you're doing uh, yard foreman type learning, uh, which is also similar to the conductors type role, you're switching sheds. So in those days, there was a lot of shed work, which was where the hubs for transportation um, trucking companies would come. And they'd bring in all the merchandise. Uh, in by, 89, there's still yeah, freight sheds around. Tons, tons. There that was one, is very interesting. There is one uh, that is now the Walmart at Runnymede and, and St. Clair by Lambton Yard. There was a big shed there that um, we would switch and we'd spend hours doing that one in the west end of the city. And then there was one downtown uh, right beside what is the Dawn Yard on the uh, north side of the Bala. Were sheds uh, specific spots back then? In other words, were there cars that went to doors or did you just put a string of cars up along the oh, shed? Oh no, you had to spot them up. And as a new brakeman like or conductor, it was, every shed had its own rules. Some of them had to be, have their couplers um, bunched. Some had to have them not bunched. And there was still high handbrakes in those days. So you'd be running up and down. Uh, you know, I remember being in the in the winter months, it'd be no coat on and you'd be soaking wet, sweating up, down, up, down from, you know, usually about 10 cars per Putting track. Putting brakes on, taking brakes off. off. Constant. So you spent a lot of time doing that, understanding the nuances of each shed. Uh, there was one near Agent Court that, uh, and, and these were jobs that just went 
That's all they did is for a whole eight hour shift went and switched a shed or a, um, or a couple of sheds. No, one shed. One shed. One shed. Like the one that went downtown. They used to call it the circle job. Um, you know, you'd, you'd go down and you'd park your caboose and uh, that was what you did for the entire eight hour shift. You would just bang out cars, lift cars, cut cars in. And it's very complicated. It's not a matter of let's just grab all 10 cars and put them aside and put 10 fresh ones in. It doesn't work like that. Oh, it doesn't work like the average model railroad it layout? It does not. I'm <laughs> sure that's how it does. Pull track one, set no, track one, pull track two, set off all. track two. And there were folks that were very gifted at, you know, chalking cars and you'll see that's why you know there was a lot of chalking going on and they would chalk up cars this needs to go from track one spot three over to track four spot two and you'd spend hours cutting cars in and out for the customer this is an interesting place to pause for a little bit about this this shed work because i think as outsiders to the railroad industry and maybe newcomers to both you know the hobby of model railroading and, and rail fanning I think there's a certain belief that by 1989, a lot of this would have been gone. Chalking of cars, freight shed switching, high hand brakes is typically thought of as a 60s, early 70s thing. And here we are on the cusp of 1990 and you're still chalking mm -hmm. cars and spotting sheds and dealing with high brake wheels. Absolutely, yeah. Talk to me a little more about this shed work before we move on. This is fascinating. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it was very complicated, and it's funny because looking back now, I realized the locomotive engineer was the one who was always orchestrating it. So the locomotive engineer would have all the switch lists up in the engine, and especially if you were spare, I, I'll never forget coming in. CP had a, a position called the industrial yard master, and you would go up and you'd get your orders, your switching orders from the industrial yard master for the night. And if the locomotive engineer saw the spare yardman come in and you knew that the job was spare that night, they would be teched off because of course we were still working on a lot of cutouts and quits in those days. And they saw the spare man's face, especially me showing up and they knew they were in for an eight hour shift, not a six hour shift. So um, that wasn't the best uh, situation to walk into. So it is what it is and you have to learn and they all, you know, had, some of them had forgotten that they had to learn at one point, but you relied on the locomotive engineers a lot in those days to do the orchestrating and okay, how's it going to work and keep track of it all. And uh, they'd have the switch list and they'd be dry too. So they were in a better position to, you know, there was not even, so if you were lucky, you found a switch list protector. Um, but otherwise that's why they were chalking them up. And it was, it, it was really like a, like a puzzle. How are you going to do it? What are you going to do first? Where does this go? Where can you put that? And you oftentimes, even though you were the yard foreman or called as the yard foreman, you relied on the yard men. So the, the, the junior person on the job, even though he was more senior to you in seniority, he held the junior position on the jobs only because he chose to work that job because you could hold a better position if you stayed in a lower class than if you um, classed up and became a conductor or yard foreman. I would imagine that most or if not all of these sheds were company owned. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know how that structure worked. Like the one at uh, Cherry Street had nothing to do with CP, like down at, uh, that was it, it not. It was just a transload. So, so what it is, is in today's world for folks would be, um, today you have the container ships and you have the container uh, trucks and they go right door to door to boat. There's no real hub. And in those days, that's really what that was. That was that hub that's now gone, right? Now it's all this just-in-time shipping and 
Um, but in those days, that's what it, you know, the, all the merchandise went to these sheds and then it would go by truck to, and there was no Walmart in those days either, but to the Zellers or Towers or whatever it was. And Much more boxcar. Tons a lot of boxcars. Box uh, Lister Brothers down off of um, Lakeshore, there was a produce place and all the produce used to come in by um, um, reefers. The, the reefer cars and we would put all that fruit and vegetable stuff in there, but uh, and then it would go by truck to wherever grocery store in Toronto. But that's all kind of gone now. It's it's comes now by truck from the U.S. direct or by boat direct. I would imagine a lot of these sheds, you probably had limited trackage to work with as Very well. Very limited. You're trying to sort through all of these boxcars that have to be spotted up. And where nowhere do you put, put everything? Them, nowhere. And that did become part of the problem as it got, you know, later on. And real estate in Toronto got more prime there was you know squeezed right out and and now there's condos uh, I, i'm specifically thinking of the one at the bottom of uh the dawn that was an entire uh shed facility it was called the circle job for cp and we would go down and and it was a nighttime job and um so so yeah so you would we would take the cars down and i worked that one as conductor it was one of my very first uh jobs as conductor so here i am all by myself i'm you know, 20 years old and uh, it goes out at six o'clock at night from agent court and it's dark because it was not obviously in the summertime. So daylight saving wasn't a thing. So it's already dark. And I remember going down that bridge over top of the Don Valley, that big long bridge that runs parallel to the Don Valley. And, and in those days it was 60 mile an hour track. And here we are going down and I was sitting up in the cupola of the van and brand new conductor. I didn't know anything outside of my rules class and i'm i'm sitting in the cupola watching these hopper cars in front of me just going back and forth and back and forth side to side side to side as we rip along and i thought to myself i'm gonna die here like i am literally i'm probably gonna die and this is this is how my life is gonna end right here as these cars skip in the don valley in, in the, the cupola of the van in the cupola of the van and i thought this is it like I so everybody was, wants to go i well <laughs> Some people, but not me. I was 20 years old and I was terrified and I thought, what am I doing? And I remember having my feet up on the bars in the, in the van and CP had road vans and yard vans. And on those jobs, we would take the yard vans down and they were not nearly as nice. They weren't the big saddleback vans. And I remember thinking to myself, this is it. I'm, I'm going to end my life here. The woodies would have been gone by 89. There were still some. We still had some wooden vans around. We still, yeah. You had woodies in Toronto we did, in 89. We did, yeah. Wow. They were, I mean, there wasn't that many, but, um, yeah. you know, we still had a few for some of the industrial jobs. So but. tell me a little more about this nighttime shed job down Yeah, so the, the nighttime, dawn. yeah. The whole nighttime thing, I think, as a woman and, and <laughs> in the industry is a little daunting, right? Uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't come from Toronto, so I wasn't overly familiar with um, a lot of the areas that I was working in and I remember making set-offs in North Toronto and and being chased by by dogs and running up you know the sides of of boxcars and praying the dog would disappear um, but one of my my favorite stories is um, going down to Dawn Yard and um, we would cross over all through the TTR so the Toronto Terminal Railway there was a support yard just to the south uh, side of the TTR called Keating Yard. Toronto Terminal Railways was joint trackage between CN and CP in and around Union Station. Correct. Okay. Just uh, adjoining the um, Oakville sub on one end and the Kingston sub on the other. So both railways had access to what's called the TTR. Bottom end of the Galt and uh, the bottom end of the Belleville. So all four uh, subdivisions tied in right there. And then there was some supporting track. The beer store was down there. This Keating Yard was down there. So there was big industry down there. Lever Brothers, 
uh, a shingle place. Uh, the Toronto Water Treatment Facility was down there. So lots of activity down there in Toronto. So you'd be coming out on this night job. Do you recall what time you went on duty on that uh, job? This, this job was uh, the circle job. And then we had another nighttime one. And I don't remember the name of the job. Um, the dawn job, I think, is actually what they called it. And it went even after the Cherry Like, Street. are we talking 2200? Um, probably late? not quite that late. A little bit earlier than that. Because you didn't work all night long, you got in at like two or three or four in the morning. So it wasn't like a midnight till eight. It was some odd hour in between. What would your typical power be on that job back in 89? Oh, gosh. Um, Anything. Yeah, like whatever they had. I mean, but not not yard engines. We would have um, the bigger power, but there was always fights about what they needed, what they wanted. They liked certain engineers liked certain power so they could see the ground when some wanted certain power so that it would have more capacity uh, pulling back up because going up the Belleville was all uphill. Was it usually a single unit on that circle job? Uh, yep, because we always had to run around our train. Okay. Always had to run around the train because we only had, yeah, and just one engine. Single yeah. unit, yeah. steel steel and cupola van. Yeah. So you'd go down with how many cars would be on that circle depends job? Depends on the day. Depends. Uh, we did Lever Brothers. So we would have boxcar traffic, hopper traffic. We would interchange with CN down there because there was a track CN would leave for us. And then we would leave, uh, we would pick up from them and leave cars for them. So there was an interchange track. They, they had one for us and we had one for them. And we would do whatever industries. And, and again, it always went back and forth between CN and CP on who had the bid and who won the contract. So sometimes you would have the work uh, that CN wouldn't have. So the customers would change, the base would ch customer base would change. Sometimes they would have more of the Lever Brothers traffic than we would have. Um, and so when we were coming back up, we would, um, we would shove caboose first so you would marshal your train so the engine would be at the back and he'd shove you up to the TTR again so now we've done all our work and we're going to shove back up and there was a switch that we used to have to get so CN could get in and would, as a courtesy you would get the switch back for for the CN and so uh, we're shoving up and uh, I remember being at the back of the van so I had given a car count of you know 20 or 30 we're coming up the lead and I'm in the other end of the caboose getting papers or whatever. And I went to go back to the, and I could feel the van shake. So I knew someone had entrained my van and it was dark late, like two, three in the morning. And I see this grubby, grubby get on the back of the van. And my radio is at the other end on the table. And he's between, the table is between him and I, and I don't have a radio. I have nothing. And this guy's gotten on my van and I'm, I'm just terrified now because I figure I've picked up this bum and now I can't call anyone for help. The best I can do is dump it because in the cabooses, they had a cord that ran all the way through the ceiling that you could dump the air. So at least they would know I was in trouble. But I thought for sure this is it. This guy's going to try and rob me or, you know, dispose of me in some way. And, um... The fellow saw the look on my face and it was just sheer panic and I must have turned ghostly white and he said, it's okay, I'm seeing conductor. <laughs> so because he had gotten on at the switch, wanted to make sure that I, he was gonna, that we were done and he could reverse the switch. But of course, everybody's filthy dirty and looks like a bum that works on the railroad and I assumed he was a, a bum. So yeah. Now as an ardent CP fan, there's a joke in there about the CN guy being called a bum, but I'm, I, I wouldn't do that, Michelle. I just, <laughs> just I wouldn't stoop to that level. We're going to keep everything above board here. 
Yeah. So that so that good lesson. That was a good lesson. Always keep your radio with you, and not everybody who looks like a bum is a bum. They might just (laughs) might be a railroader. They might just work for CN. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Yeah. So that was. uh, So yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Did you enjoy that job? Other than the hours, Um, like was it was it good work? Probably good paying job. It was good paying, and I don't think I knew any different at the time. I mean, um, I was making really good money, and it's all you do is work. I am, you know, so I. I know that I did give up a lot of that time in my, my life because all I did was work and not too many friends want to go out and drink, uh, on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, that's not kind of a fun time and you're working all weekends. Uh, the first year I was on the railroad, I, I got called, um, I, I hired on and then that very first winter I got called on boxing day to go uh, pick up a wrecked unit, um, Northeast, uh, of here. So Merry Christmas. Here we go. You had mentioned before in our last segment about the fact that you're physically not an imposing, you're not a, uh, an imposing physical presence. Railroading is very physical. Uh, there's switches to throw. Not all of them throw easily. Um, there's uh, snow shoveling to do if you've got snow and ice. Air hoses take some muscle. Did you take to that easily? Did you find yourself getting in better shape or wanting to be, when I say better shape, I mean, you know, muscular, that type of thing. Did you wrestle with the physical aspects of it at all or no? Um, I don't think I did in the sense that, first of all, I, I, I was a farm girl, so I was raised sort of did, you know, I threw hay as a kid and did all those kinds of things. So I wasn't unaccustomed to physical, uh, but I certainly didn't need to go to the gym in those days. Um, but I, I now have a bum back because I um, spent many, many nights in the class yard saying, no, no, I got it. I don't need you to help me. Um, and I would straighten draw bar after draw bar after draw bar on multi-level cars that was bypassed uh, couplers and, you know, didn't want anyone to help me. And I didn't want to be the hood ornament as my instructors had said, don't be the hood ornament, do it yourself. And so I took great pride in doing my job myself um, were there switches that I needed help with in the winter on the Mac tier sub? Absolutely. Were there switches that men needed help with on the Mac tier sub? <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, it was more about technique and it still is. So if you've got the technique to throw a switch or you've got the technique, did I, did I need tips, uh, or did I need, um, to, to do things that men didn't do? Absolutely. I'd, I'd have to grab a pipe if there was a switch that I didn't have enough leverage on or, um, in the class yard, where's a two by four? Let me find a two by four that I can stick in the drawbar and wedge. Do you find that your farm background, like your farm raising really was really helped you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The work ethic, right? Yeah. Just, um, the work ethic that my, uh, you know, I credit my parents and my family with. And, and I say to my own kids, half a life is just showing up, right? Just show up and do the job. That's half of what life is. And, um, you and I were talking off air earlier, uh, when I arrived over coffee and you were saying that you very much believe in railroading or any job being a meritocracy. Uh, you weren't looking for a special carve out because you were a woman. You wanted the job. You wanted to earn it on your own merits and, yeah. and do it like every, everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very respectable. Um, okay. So you are, uh, working the circle job, uh, that shed bit was very interesting. I, I didn't realize there was that much shed work, uh, in, in, uh, in 89. Uh, did you work stock cars at all? Um, we had a place up, um, Midhurst, Midland, Midhurst, Midhurst. Um, and when we had trains, we would, they would, I didn't remember it so, so much. So we would have a few on our train, not an entire train full, but guys would tell me that, and there were pens. 
So I guess there were rules in the day about how long livestock could stay on board a train. They had uh, rest rules. For, for, the, for the actual livestock. There were rest rules for, for cattle yes, before there were rest rules yes, for people. That's exactly right. And so <laughs> they had a pen there and they would stop and they'd set off cars and they would actually have to take the animals off and water. And, and this would be 89. Uh, we would only set off bits of them. So if I had five or 10, but there were whole trains of them. That 1980, 1989 though. 90, that, yeah. 1990. Yeah. 90. Not, not okay. as much, but the pens were still there at Midhurst, Ontario and yeah. Midhurst, Craighurst. I'm trying to think where they were, but somewhere in there, it's about the halfway point on the Mac tier sub. Um, this is another one of those things where people who are not involved directly in the railroad would think that moving cattle and livestock by rail was way done by 8990 fun fact for you cp and up the union pacific were the last two class one railways to move livestock by rail and i thought it had dried up in 88 and you're telling me in 90 mm -hmm. there was still the odd cars car at midhurst mm -hmm. which is in the barry area yes, uh, off the mac tier yeah. sub that's fascinating and always ride ahead of those cars right you never ride behind those cars <laughs> Learned that one the hard way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the uh, I think early wisdom was, and you can correct me on this. I think they used to try to keep livestock movements on the head end to keep yes. the slack uh, to mitigate the slack action and for the set off, right? So you could easily set them off and pick them yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, it two good reasons to yeah. do that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and then of course there was the stockyards in Toronto, right at uh, Lambton, so Keelan, St. Clair, so the West End. There was the entire stockyard um, facility, and that's where uh, most of it was destined. If it was not uh, you know, that's kind of the, the end of the line for, for most of so it. So when you were working the circle job in the sheds, were you conductor at that point or were you so we, considered uh, a brakeman? Um, yard foreman. So I had already done my mechanical and was conductor. And then, um, and I would get road work, uh, not as many spare trips because uh, it was all pool work. So you'd get the odd spare trip going to Mactier or, or Smith Falls. Um, what was different as conductor as opposed to a brakeman or foreman just the responsibility like your suit you're responsible for the rest of the train right so the locomotive engineer is responsible for the locomotives and then the conductor is responsible for everything else so i think the dangerous commodities was 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 daunting uh knowing all the time what your tonnage was uh length um when i first hired on we had um the scanners were um wayside and the conductor used to have to watch them so there would be boards overhead and they would have three bubbles, bubbles no, no troubles. troubles exactly so you had to know where you were all the time uh the engineer would be calling stuff and you had to remember and know where you were to tell him when you were over the rule 43s um because we didn't have that technology at that point so the responsibility was huge and i i really don't think i realized going into it what i was up for but i realized once i was involved this whole thing is on me now um and oftentimes the person on the engine with the locomotive engineer was younger than me or like junior to me so they weren't of any help so you really relied on the locomotive engineer you were hired 10 years post Mississauga. Mm -hmm. I know that around 82, 83, I think my research showed me that the marshalling of hazardous and dangerous goods really came into effect in a more formal way around 82, 83 in the timetable. Talk to me about what that used to do in terms of adding extra time. Yeah, just, it was a responsibility. Again, you had to know, okay, I'm picking this car up. Where does it go in my train? Where can I put it? Where can't I put it? And pulling out the, uh, you know, 
uh, it used to be called a CS44 for CP. Uh, it was your, your GOI, your general operating instructions. Where does this fit in in the game? And putting it all together. Do I have the paperwork for it? And paperwork became a very big item. So, so okay, I'm going to lift five cars. Do I have five pieces of paper? And and knowing what the length is and knowing what the tonnage is because I knew it meant something to the engineer. Meant not a lot to me in those days, but um, he I wanted knew, to know if I you knew had he needed to know what that propane was. loads exactly. or whatever so, the case may be. So, and yeah. all of this adds time. Yeah, it's there just... was time to it. Uh, yeah, understanding where do I get these documents because every yard had a different way of getting the documents. Um, so yeah, it, it added time. But generally, we're told like there was a yard master. All these yards were supported, um, you know, and there was a yard master there, and they would give you a brand new consist, a brand new consist everywhere you went. I lift these cars. I'm gonna add it. Here's your new paperwork. Here's your new paperwork. So. Um, so you didn't ha always have to do it, but it was when you were doing it online or if you had to make set offs because of a mechanical issue and then knowing, oh shoot, you know, here I am in the middle of the bush, um, and you're responsible, right? Um, kickers were a big thing in those days, undesired emergency brake applications. So a, a an emergency brake application that kept happening within the train every time the engineer touched the brakes and like, oh, now where is this going to, where is it? And figuring out, you know, isolating it. And so it was interesting times. I was lucky. I, I, you know, I was around a lot of, you know, um, MacGyvering that stuff. And, um, you know, we had just gone to, um, the newer control valves. There was, uh, ABDW X's. And so, um, those were all new control valves. So prior to that, like, Oh, troubleshooting, where is it? It's leaking. And how do you fix it? And, and, you know, a, Oh, a look, a loony fits in here. And, uh, <laughs> Um, you have you mentioned MacGyver, one of my favorite shows from the 80s. You have to have, uh, I like the word chutzpah. Mm. To be a railroader of any metal, you have to have chutzpah. And chutzpah yeah. is just the art of making it happen. Mm -hmm. You may not have the textbook tool or Absolutely. the textbook material, and you certainly couldn't Google it in 1989 yeah. and 90, mm -hmm. but you had to get this train Absolutely. over the road. At all costs. According to the rules. You're, and you're not making any money, right? The other thing is uh, between the switches, so between the two outer main track switches, so the sort of yard area of your destination and your origin you make no money it's a flat rate and so the pressure is on from everybody in your crew to get it done right to get over the road fix do whatever to get it to destination so yeah absolutely and it's still that way in transportation tell me a couple of stories about uh, your days working in the uh either the circle job or some of the shed jobs and then we'll we'll close off that segment with a couple of your memories um, from those days yeah, probably, um, probably just as as a as a brakeman or a conductor working the main line jobs. Um, and again, the, not well thought out at CP. I know CN had had a few women around. CP not so much. Um, I always wanted to have coffee to as a as a fatigue countermeasure in those days, but. I didn't want to drink a lot of coffee because our washrooms didn't exist. You were given a garbage bag in a crew pack. If anyone knows what a crew pack is, it was all your paper towels and hand sanitizer for the entire day in a, in a little handout that you got in the, in the booking in room when you started your tour of duty. And literally all we had for toilets in the nose of the engine was a seat. And then you took this bag and you put it over the seat and then you went to the washroom in the bag and you threw it out. You just disposed of it. And so for me, and there was no locks on the doors, there was nothing, you had to back your way into the, the nose of the toilet, it was freezing cold, often covered with snow, and I used to just pray we would get a scanner, we would be 
anywhere between here and especially um, Belleville, it's 198 track miles, so it's a long trip. And I used to pray we would get scannered so that I could head to the Scannered meaning like a, a hot, hot box, box or dragging, dra equipment. dragging equipment. Exactly. And they were very finicky because it was in the early days of that technology. And I would pray we would get a hot box so that I could get off the engine and I could use the outdoors as a bathroom. So, so yeah, that was probably the, the worst of, of the early days on uh, the main line. Got another one for us? <sighs> Something that comes to mind. Something that comes to mind. Probably working the Owen Sound job and new to the industry. And the guys thought they were going to play a joke on me. Uh, we had gone up to Owen Sound. Uh, that morning, they had given me a letter from the superintendent signed on CP letterhead said, sorry, Michelle, there's no rooms uh, at the hotel in town. And you're going to have to stay in the bunkhouse with all the men tonight. I thought nothing of it. I'd stayed in MacTier. It was all common rooms, common or common washroom, common areas. I thought, oh, well, you know, it does do what it is, what it is, I, you know, away we go. So the crew was very disappointed because I didn't react. I didn't tell them anything about this letter from the superintendent and uh, away we went and it came time to go to bed and the, the fellas all asked me if we were going, you know, what, what, what the story, I said, oh, well, I'm staying here tonight. I'm not going to the hotel. And they said, oh, why? And I said, well, apparently there's no room. And then they said, oh, jokes on you, there's room. And they thought that I'd have seen the hotel park a lot empty on the way into town, but I didn't notice it. So the joke was actually on them because there was room at the hotels, but they thought they'd get me because I would have to stay with all of them in the bunkhouse, but it didn't have to. <laughs> well, your career wasn't over at Conductor. Uh, you ended up moving from the tail end to the head end. And I think uh, we'll talk about that next time. Great. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks everybody for listening to The Platform. This is the Station House Audio Series. Detector out.